out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love our special guests. This week, we went all the way to Wichita, Kansas, the United States of America, because I managed to track down a member of a band, not just in one band, but two, The Embarrassments, and then Big Dipper. Yes, they were once on Homestead Records, Stroke Demon Records. So um, I spoke to Bill Godfrey to find out more about life, love, poetry, all that other groovy stuff that happens when you're in a band. That's sometimes going somewhere fast and sometimes not at all. Anyway, after some casual chat and some getting to know each other, we got down to that important question, the early formative years. Bill, save us now. Tell us about your early years. Yeah, I I was a guitarist in you know the the period that were that you wanted to talk about. I I kind of evolved from that into other things too. But um, I, so I well, I was a Beatles kid. Um, my older sisters were able to go out and buy records. You know, and the first I became aware of. of the joy of having music around, you know, my sisters already had all these 45s in a stack, no sleeves or anything, but I'd go through them and actually had a lot of Motown 45s and then and, and Beatles records. And I picked right up on that. I can remember uh, bringing Beatles albums to school, like, you know, show and tell, I'd be like third grade or something. And, you know, this would have been, um, mid early to mid 60s and like when you were born pretty much. I, i'm i'm so seven years older than you or something and um so you know everybody's showing off their beatles records um but at the same time the monkeys were coming on tv or maybe a couple years after that so throughout most of the 60s for me it was like the beatles and the monkeys and to me there was no difference in quality or or uh you know the 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 talent of these guys as far as i could tell it's like oh four guys making great pop music and another four guy okay <laughs> one band's a, one band is partly american you know davy jones obviously what but but okay the other band whatever great music that was that was the whole world of music to me i i wasn't appreciating actually yet that my dad had actually made records as a uh, a big band crooner like in the he was he he could have been like a a frank sinatra type of crooner he didn't pursue it but he had that voice and he had some records that he made and that were around the house and and that music you know was from 20 years earlier which now doesn't mean anything when you think about 20 year music that's 20 years old doesn't seem to mean anything but mm. back then it was a whole different world so i had absolutely no understanding of music from the 40s but the music of the 60s to me it was all summed up in the beatles and the monkeys and i was too young to be a hippie you know my sisters were hippies but as the 60s ended i was still just like beatles monkey but like oh no oh my god both bands are gone music is over i didn't know what 
I was going to listen to. I hadn't, I hadn't met some of um, my friends that we ended up forming uh, the embarrassment with actually became friends of mine pretty early on, but um, I was just wandering lost and, and latching on to uh, everything from uh, uh, just folk music and um, whatever my sisters were bringing home, even like Moody Blues records. And I'm thinking, I don't quite get that. It's, it's not, it's not as good as the Beatles. I'm not, I'm just not getting it. But I finally uh, was introduced to Alice Cooper and David Bowie pretty much by the same uh, friend of mine, my oldest friend in the world now, because I met him when uh, I was in third grade. So I would have been like eight years old. I meet this guy in the neighborhood and find out that his brother, his big brother's got a drum kit and he's, you know, so cool. He has a band and he shows me his record collection and there's uh, David Bowie, um, the, the man of words, man of music, the actual pre-RCA version of, you know, with, with Space Oddity on it. But it right. was before it was re-released on RCA. So, so we didn't know what to make of that. It's like, oh, this is really cool. And, and he had to explain to me, you know, that Alice Cooper was a guy and a band and, you know, taught me all that. And my first, first rock concert then was Alice Cooper, um, you know, early seventies, uh, seeing the band and that, boy, that, that stuck in my head. Um, we didn't see Bowie till the Thin White Duke tour. Um, in the Midwest, you know, as close as he came to, to, to Kansas, we had to drive uh, like six hours or something. But um, that, so, you know, it went after Wandering Lost, I know I got into some prog rock, yes, and ELP, but, but mostly it was glam, it was Alice Cooper and David Bowie. Funny you should mention that. And anything that was an offshoot, of course, that got us into Lou Reed and and led back to the Velvet Underground which the timing was was pretty convenient because it 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 overlapped with Iggy Pop through through David Bowie you know we, we realized oh Iggy Pop and then we trace it back to the Stooges and we trace back to the Velvet Underground and at, and at right about that time the Ramones first album is is coming out so this is I guess I mean, kind of pre-British punk, yes. if I remember right, because I know the Ramones had a big impact on the on the British scene. So, so we were excited. The first Ramones album came out, and we'd never heard anything like that yet. We could kind of connect it to uh, just even the Beatles being Beatles fans, just being fans of of catchy pop rock music. It was like. And even Alice Cooper, then it was like, okay, well, he's, they've got great songs. You know, these are just great rock songs. And I think we got, well, I, as a guitarist, I needed that Ramones kind of ticket to like, okay, now you can be a guitarist. Because I was flailing around trying to figure out how to play Alice Cooper songs. And I couldn't, I, I couldn't do it. I didn't have any, I'd had lessons when I was eight years old and I gave it up. So I was trying to teach myself guitar and I couldn't decipher these like classic rock guitar parts. But as soon as the Ramones album came out and then I'm thinking Ramones, Velvet Underground, 
noise rock. I'm thinking, I think I can actually come up with something similar to this. I, I, you know, with my very limited skills, I, I think I can actually approximate this effect. Yes. And, and that's what was like the ticket in was, was power chords and, uh, but then coming up with nuance, you know, I'm probably getting way too far down the line, but, but that music, the combination of those, those different styles of music and those bands at the time was kind of giving me a way in. Yeah. Um, so, so interesting. So did you go from sort of rehearsing with your acoustic guitar when did you get your first electric guitar then? Uh, I had given up completely on, uh, I had acoustic guitar, you know, for about this, that one year and I wasn't having any fun with it. My teacher was really boring. So I didn't even have an acoustic. I, I as the Alice Cooper wannabe, I went out and got the cheapest pawn shop electric guitar I could get. And I didn't know that it was virtually unplayable. So that, that was another reason I wasn't doing, you know, much good with it. And I had to go, I don't know what, what made me decide to go invest like a couple hundred dollars in another used guitar, but this time it was really good quality. And, and um, I ended up, I ended up playing and recording with it until just a couple of years ago when I, uh, it's now in a local historical museum. Actually, <laughs> It's part of a permanent collection because of the fact that I played it, you know, for all through these years. So they added it to the collection, but it was this used uh, Epiphone hollow body, not, you know, not the first choice for punk rock guitar. It actually, it was, it was made to look like one of John Lennon's later, um, uh, what was his version? He, he had the two F hole blonde guitar, but it wasn't an Epiphone. It was a more expensive, maybe a Gibson, but um, this was this was meant to look like John Lennon's blonde F hole right. guitar. Yes, I've seen. And, and so I I just I I fell in love with the look of it, but also it sounded really good and and, and it played really well. So I made that investment, and then I was able to actually get the satisfaction of playing so I I was learning on on uh, electric you know I bought like a just a little amp to uh use in my room and and then transfer to the literally to the garage kind of situation did you did you grow you grow up in Kansas was that Wichita yeah so what was yeah. the scene like you know someone who's never been to Wichita what's what's Wichita yeah. like as a as a place well, now, you know, now it's a whole different world. Now it has a lot of big city elements to it and it stays pretty much on top of things. But back when we were kids there, we didn't have a scene. Um, we were, you know, as going from neighborhood friends going into being like college art students, part of the college art crowd. Um, that's what we could study or take classes in, learn about, along with theater, you know, one of us was into theater and taking a band music, but I was strictly into visual art myself. And um, that kind of provided a way for people to get together, but for a way to experience this music that we were, we were following it, um, we were having to go 
out of town just to see the Ramones. We had to go up to Kansas City. It's about 200 miles away. Um, but man, that, I mean, that was no question. It's like the Ramones are coming to Kansas City. I think it was like the first tour or something. And, and we were there. We, we hung out and played pinball with them in between their sets because we were so like obsessed with that music. And, you know, we'd come up from Wichita and nobody else, none of the Kansas City people were even that driven I mean, we were just obsessed with this. The same thing happened when the Sex Pistols came, you know, the, the only tour, you know, yes. the storied US tour and they all these odd places they played. Well, they the closest they came was uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Well, that was actually the same distance the other direction as going to Kansas City. So we drove down there in a blizzard to see that show. And we were the only kids waiting in front of the club when the bus pulled up the anarchy bus and everyone you know gets off the bus one at a time and they're sliding down the that was uh the streets like on a hill and it was covered with ice so some of the bands like running and sliding down the hill and sid vicious comes over and he's like the most sociable of the whole group everybody else you know, like walks right by like yeah and of course uh johnny rotten got the flu or something so he's miserable and he he doesn't stop to say hello but Sid Vicious just stands there and talks to us wants to trade um badges like oh look at you got Iggy Pop Iggy Pop swapping badges and we're all in amazement you know we're we're probably almost the same age as him but we're like you know looking up at him like like his head is gigantic and we're just these little <laughs> we we're, were in awe and and that show was life-changing you know it's like incredible but we couldn't believe like of course the club filled up but why are we the only ones like so passionate like we had to be there when the band got there it's like this is the best thing in, you know there was nothing like this but yes. apparently we were that just obsessed with the music so we had to go back, we had to like create that in Wichita. We couldn't find that happening. So we just kind of put feelers out. It's like, oh, you know, you're, you like weird stuff, you know, come, we're starting a punk band, whatever, you know, come and be part of the scene. And, and it took, it took a couple of years of uh, learning how to write a song and like be in any way listenable. I mean, we, we went through uh, a, some, early stages that I'm, I'm sure a lot of a lot of young musicians go through the, you know yeah you try playing with some people some configuration and it's like oh you really suck on drums well, like, <laughs> you can't sing what are you doing why don't you try playing bass so it took a lot of moving stuff around but i was always on guitar actually i was the lead singer and guitarist in a trio version but um we couldn't pull that off because I didn't have the chops to be like either one of those actually, but yes, but we were starting to write some decent songs, but, but that um, still the power trio wasn't, wasn't You weren't going to be Jimi Hendrix or the cream, were you? Uh, not even the police or no. Um, I mean, the only, the, the only solid foundation we had was again, my, my oldest friend, 
in the world, Brent, who now, now is Woody, but he was such a good drummer. He was such a solid drummer. Um, that was the only thing that kept us able to keep going, I think, was the sheer luck that we had this guy that was such a natural talent on drums that, you know, I could be making so much noise, but, but, he, but he kept a, a rhythm to it that was enough that, I don't know, it just, it, it yeah. uh, well, it it's interesting because I, I sort of was a guy who was in a band called The Bible, who who were being um, yes. He said, you, you know, you, the drummer. He said, you've got if you get a good drummer, they can keep the band. You know, they can make a band sound much so much better than they really are. That oh was, yeah, he said. Um, <laughs> yes, the drummer is bizarrely quite an important one. Which, as a non-musician, I never really appreciated that. I just thought, oh, that's interesting. But yes, as you said, they probably can sort of uh, swing a band from being mediocre to being amazing. So when you when you sort of got your fourth member, did you sort of, when did the name of the band suddenly go, right, this is it. We've got the name, we've got a constitution, we've got an ethos, we, we, we're on the mission, we, we're sort of going now. This is, it. this is going to start happening. When? Yes. Um, early uh, 1979, I guess, the beginning. Um, yeah, because we, yeah. I can't remember when that Sex Pistols show was, by the way, but, but let's, you know, say it was, was it 78 or 77? But I think the two years prior were all these different attempts to try to get something to come together. And, and, to, and we did it in public. We did it in front of, you know, the, this growing local uh, community of people who just like, really wanted there to be some kind of punk or original music scene at least you know just just because mostly it was cover bands all over town that's all you that's all we had so people just wanted to hear something new and different and and, and did have you, that so and did you get many bands that came through you know which oh well? oh people didn't generally come to wichita we um that's why we were so used to going to these other uh, places you know to see saw the Buzzcocks up the road in Lawrence and, and um, of course we were big fans. I had to go all the way to Chicago to see the clash. Right. Uh, it was like a, a, a day on the train to get up there, but I wasn't going to let that go by. But, you know, as far as Wichita itself, we had uh, yeah, David Johansson did a tour for his first album after the New York dolls. And that was like, Oh boy, we get to go see somebody actually in Wichita. Yes. Um, no, it, it took it took until a while later. We ended up opening for the Ramones here, but not till 83. I think that was the first and probably the only time they ever came and played uh, Wichita. So were you, were you aware of that whole scene that was happening also in New York with, you know, CBGBs and Max's Kansas City was that all those other bands other than the Ramones but you know people like yeah. Richmond and Television and Blondie and the Talking Heads were they all bands right. that also started to think Christ listen to this this is also good stuff Forget yeah it. I think we well we related a lot I think to Talking Head of course to Jonathan Richmond and Modern Lovers um, that right away we strongly identified with that because of the, I think 
also there was that um, unpretentious quality of Jonathan Richmond just just not trying to be a punk rocker in style or an image or anything like that. It was just like this guy writing songs about very personal stuff, and, and we appreciated that very much because you know we saw that oh you know he he's telling us about life in Boston. I ended up moving to Boston, and and, and you know that was one of the initial attractions was, you know, he, he's telling us very detailed personal things about Boston. And we identified with doing the same thing about Wichita and about living in Kansas. So we wanted it to be very just natural expression. You know, um, we liked the fact that, that there didn't have to be a fashion statement to go along with it. We were pretty anti-fashion. Um, there came to be, you know, there some local bands kind of started to do more of the the new wave thing, like let's go for the image or whatever. And it was like, yeah, that's that's there's just no reason to do that. So we, if anything, we kind of mocked that. We would sort of like mess with that or play up the fact that we all wore glasses and and as if that was some kind of uh, you know uniform of the band. <laughs> like something to be proud of the, the style <laughs> you know, and it, it gave us kind of a buddy holly connection too that which we you know were yes. aware of we could kind of play off of that the horn rim glass glasses look and um so talking heads also appealed to us you know the fact that oh they're art we can relate they're art students they're visual artists but they have a sense of 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 song, of craftsmanship, and and uh, a real fresh approach, you know, not not based on a lot of uh, musical training, just just creativity, just creative expression. Um, we thought that that's that's a blend that we could kind of relate to. We thought we could offer some of it in that way. Not, as far as West Coast bands, we didn't really find much to identify with. You know the the weirdos and um, we weren't even big fans of X even kind of like we we went out to California went we went hung out in Hollywood even part of part of researching what we were doing I guess like let's go check out these scenes firsthand you know it wasn't enough to go to these shows that we were able to go to but we went out hung out at the mask club which was the center of the Hollywood scene I get. It seems like we were we were there. Like the Go Go's were having one of their first rehearsals. They had a little rehearsal room in the basement because you know after the fact, then the Go Go's became a thing. And we were like, oh my god, we like we we met those girls. They they couldn't play. They didn't know how to play yet. They were just wanting to get together and start a punk band, and it was so cute, you know. And the, but we saw these really intense. LA bands and we thought okay that's a little scary we're not like we're not quite doing that I don't, I don't know what they're all so angry about but <laughs> it's cool and all but that's kind of like we're not that angry about anything so uh and we went to CBGB's and we, and, and uh, Max's Kansas City there wasn't much going on at that point and, and um, we even went and hung out at the Rat in Boston try to see well you know there's a Boston scene too let's see what we can glean from that and um we just thought like 
we could we could have our own scene. Um, there was no reason not to. There was the kids, uh, these people were all the same everywhere we went. Pretty much, everyone just was into the same music, and they were trying to somehow put something together to to be part of it. So yeah, because it's interesting. Because you, you know, I, I realize with each kind of generation though we have no idea what's going on now it's completely boring. Yeah. you know but in the 60s you know you, you definitely had that kind of I suppose you would have had that sort of I don't know, psychedelic rock after a while didn't you you know there was definitely that hippie thing but that kind of fades because then suddenly people start making that sound you quite clearly have just kind of bought the wig and have gone to you know Woolworths to buy the clothes and you think <laughs> this isn't the authentic thing and then you know you had glam and some of the early glam was good and then you see people just like jumping on the scene because it's like okay let's look like spacemen and it's like oh shit that's that scene's gone <laughs> and then punk you know you had the authentic kind of early years and then you you know suddenly you see these kind of people who quite clearly weren't punk but trying to look like punk with a bit of a sneer and you think oh well, that scene's gone so you had that post-punk period of the you know it was the gang of four magazine public image limited and then that scene sort of goes mainly because they're probably on too many drugs really and then you had that early kind of indie stuff of you know simple minds echo and the bunny many bunny men and then you had like in 83 you had the smiths in the uk who would just had that kind of different sound again when Morrissey definitely had had glasses as well. So you you were starting to sort of release stuff though, right at the turn of the decade, didn't you? The eighties. That was that was when you hit the recording studio, wasn't it? Yeah, by the end of that first year, you know, with, with seventy nine, um, si since we had done all this earlier work to kind of cut our teeth and you know, kind of be able to throw out a whole lot of, you know, poorly written songs and we, and we were starting from scratch. I think that gave us the advantage uh, once we, you know, we decided on a name just because we had a, a radio show to play live on the air, co local college radio station. And um, we had just put, put the new lineup together and written, we'd written several new songs actually, but we didn't think of, about a name for the band yet so we under pressure we came up with the embarrassment and kind of announced it and and um played all the you know all, all the new songs we had and some cover versions and by the end of that year you know we were able to pick and choose through all these new songs and we knew we had a handful that we wanted to record we our only goal you know and Gang of, Four, Gang of Four and the Mekons 45s probably figured pretty heavily in it because we're buying all these import records and we're looking at like a couple of those thinking, okay, we just want to have a 45 in a picture sleeve that we can feel is some, you know, at least striving to be somewhere near the quality of a of something like this, a Gang of Four 45 or or a Mekons 45, something with at least one really cool song on it, hopefully two. And and That's we'll it. we'll feel like we finally we've made this major step and we've really uh made a statement. And, and we knew we'd have to just do it ourselves completely. That you know, we weren't gonna be shopping it around to any label. There wasn't anything like that to find somebody to put it out for us, but we knew we could put it out ourselves. Act well actually. I think we ended up sending the uh, the mixes to um, to Bomp Records, 
there weren't too many like places you could think of to send it to send anything to but bomp records out in la was uh, you know they were doing reissues but they were putting out some garage band stuff and it's like and even they were promoting some some punk records thought well maybe you know maybe they'll like let's see at least what they say well they they ended up I think they sent it, you know, sent us some nice feedback and stuff. And they ended up pulling one track that was a cover song and they put it on a Battle of the Garages album compilation. It fit perfectly with that because it was a, you know, it was a 60s song. It was a cover of The Seeds. And um, they just thought, oh, that, that fits in great. Um, but they didn't have any use for our original song. But I think that actually came out before our own 45 came out. So we we were given a, a big boost just by the fact that somebody thought that one of these first recordings was professional enough to yes. actually to put out and distribute. We thought, whoa, this is amazing. So And did you, I mean, your first single for the band was Sex Drive Pat and Pat B-side patio set, wasn't it? I got some visuals here. For, yes, um, that's the reissue version. Yeah, and that's so, what we ended up slapping together, and you know. So when you went into the studio to do that, did you feel that because um, that's that's still your most popular song, isn't it? So did it did it did it feel like yes, we've we've got we've got something here, and the producer, there's experience in the recording studio. Did that all feel like things were going well? Yeah, I think we were really pleasantly surprised at how it, how it came together and how it sounded. Um, you know, it was our first opportunity to hear what we were doing under more scrutiny. And, and, and not that we wanted it to be too controlled. We wanted it to just sound like us pretty much as raw as possible, but just to hear it fine-tuned enough and presented uh just in such a a properly balanced way and you know, performed well and like we were able to get it exactly the way we envisioned it like this is this is how it's supposed to sound yes. simple and, but i mean this this is how we thought the band should sound performing it live but you know who knows how often it actually came across that way, but but we were able to actually present it and control it so that we it sounded like what we thought the band was. Yeah, because interesting, because in the, so a lot of the bands I've done in the 80s, that especially that early period, you know, we had Thatcher got into power in 79. The early 80s, there'd been the Falkland War, there'd been also then the miners' strike. There was a huge amount of unemployment, especially for young people who kind of were leaving school or whatever and thinking, actually, there's just no future. Quite, you know, that famous yeah. quote. So a lot of people went unemployed and you could get unemployment benefit and job seekers allowance and enterprise allowance schemes, which were another thing that you just kind of got given some money, your housing benefit. But basically, they didn't have to put that figure as an unemployment you know, put it down on that graph. So it tried to make the figures look better than what they were. But so a lot of bands at that time just thought, 
well, we're 16, we're unemployed, no one cares, we'll form a band. And, you know, and though it sounds a bit sort of romantic, a lot of them, you know, got played on the John Peel show, who was the DJ in this country, who played a lot of alternative music. And it was like, oh yeah, John Peel likes us. And then, you know, you get a John Peel session, which you'd get a chance to record four songs. And that was often a sort of a way to get that kind of more gigs around the country. And then that first album. So, you know, bands normally had three to four, almost five years before things started to sort of crumble, as they always do. But so what was it like in America, you know, and, and where you were in, in that sort of political, social way? You know, I've never really thought about, thought about it in quite that way and how it would compare to the experience with, with young people in the UK. Um, Cause it, 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 at first it would seem like this world's apart, like we're in a completely different kind of um, political situation. I mean, there, um, um, Probably economically, you know, then we, we were we were a lot more fortunate. We sh we shouldn't have had much to complain about or struggle with. But I think the, the fact for for us, um, is you know, I think about how how I spent a lot of my life doing some of this kind of stuff. Um, that. We really didn't fit in with um, the path that people were expected to take. You know where where we lived. You know the kind of neighborhoods we grew up with, the kind of family environment. Um, you know, none of us were poor, struggling in that way. We were pretty pretty lucky, and we just didn't feel like we belonged in that though we we didn't fit it we didn't we couldn't really accept it in our heads like well I remember my friend Brent the drummer expressed it pretty well in a more recent interview I, I heard him give up about um it was just the idea that he was supposed to grow up and go get a job in the air aircraft industry making air airplane parts which is what Wichita was kind of uh, Wichita's jobs were based a lot on that and said you know there was no way I was going to end up doing that you know, I, I just wanted to play music or do theater or be an artist it's like I, I realized there was no place for me but we were kind of like misfits and even a little bit like spoiled brat in a way that like you know we we just weren't willing to accept going out and getting a blue collar job and just doing that. We was like, no, no, we, we're going to do art. We're going to do music as unlikely as it is. Yeah. We'll probably starve doing it, but this is what we, we feel like we have to do this. And so we were willing to suffer and sacrifice for that, at least for a time. But I think that's what um, would determine the length of a, of, of a band back then and for us too you know we lasted longer than any of our friends as the scene kind of grew into something and there became several bands well 
most of them didn't last long enough to even go into the studio and, and make a professional recording. But, you know, we, we hung in there and we toured, but it still wore us down. And we realized, oh my God, we're, we're ruining our health. We're, we're starving. We have no money. Like this is a really, really bad. And, and we don't see any success coming from what we're doing. It, who knows if we'd have stuck with it for a while longer, you know, there were some things that might've been about to happen, but it's like, we can't do this anymore. I mean, this is just, there's just no way to live now. So um, not that anybody gave up their dreams necessarily, but we all had to kind of like go, go our separate ways. Like, okay, you know, I'm sorry, we got to go, yes. got to go try something else here. We just can't do this anymore. You know, so you, up so did the bands finish around 83 time? Was that when, you know? You... Yeah, exactly. Like 83, um, as you know, on the one hand, we could have been promoting our, our most ambitious record, but, but we still had no support to do that. And we just had no energy left to do that. And we didn't even have a, we even lost our manager. So we felt abandoned, you know, and, and kind of floundering and like all, all things together. It's like, this is no fun anymore. And so we were just too burned out on it. We had to, completely leave it behind for a few years. And uh, I don't think any, any one of us would have ever thought we would ever play together again, or I'm sure most of us thought we wouldn't even play music again. Um, and half the band never did do anything um, professionally that way, but then the half meaning me and Brent, the drummer, and that we both ended up in Boston and we both ended up with much bigger professional careers in music than we had in the embarrassment, but separately. <laughs> it was yes. just, I was <laughs> weird. Okay. I only went out there to study art because, you know, painting is my main thing. And I was like, okay, I'm, that's done. Yeah, it was fun while it lasted, but I'm never going to do that again. And I ended up, doing it again but yes because most people okay in the UK you know as I said there was there was something in the 80s which I, I hadn't appreciated you know we had these gatekeepers you know because there we had the you know like the music papers you had the enemy melody maker sounds record mirror you know these weekly oh yeah papers, huge circulations you know so I mentioned that an interview would get you noticed around the country. Also, we had this DJ called John Peel who would play all the most quirky stuff that was very relevant or not relevant. That was very sort of just released. So again, that was happening. Plus, the other thing was that every town and city would have at least one, you know, but in London and probably more, would have one sort of alternative night, possibly weekly, possibly fortnightly, but mostly there would be an alternative night, you know, you know, indie night as they might have called it, you know, and it was often on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, where, you know, the, the owner of the place would probably say, look, you can't have Thursday or uh, not for Friday or Saturday because, you know, we'll, we'll be able to get some more kids but, or adults. But you can have the Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday. And frankly, as long as you just don't wreck the place, you know, 
fill your boots. So, you know, people, you know, if you've got a play on the John Peel show or a good mention in the music paper, you know, someone who was a young promoter would say, oh, do you want to come and play in our club in Bristol or Manchester or, or Leeds or Brighton, Norwich, you know, London, you know, and, you know, kids would just get in the van, drive there, because that's all that you had to do, you know, being unemployed probably. This is a sweeping statement, but, you know, it was generally quite true. And go and play the gig, come back at four in the morning, you know, just hang out, get drunk a bit, get another gig, you know, and so bands had that lifetime of playing music and at least recording something. And, and the gatekeepers in the UK, you know, were quite, you know, I didn't realise it, but it, it kind of gave people that ability to feel like at least they were progressing and doing something, going somewhere, even if it was just up the motorway to another town. But you, at least you'd be playing in front of people that had never seen you before. And I think that was kind of important. So with a lot of bands... They would then do the first album. That was good. Second album, a bit tricky. Um, <laughs> because by then, you know, the band was you know, dynamically was having a problem. And, um, and there was also the other thing, though that people were surviving because of often being unemployed and getting benefits, there was still no money within the band. And then this is the one thing I hadn't realised. But if anybody from the UK toured America, they'd always say, and we came back, and we broke up because it just destroyed us. So it was interesting that America has that effect on bands. They just think, God, I always wanted to do American play music. And now the reality is, you know, forget it. I'm never doing that again. So, well, now that, yeah, that did, certainly didn't happen to every everybody based on the bands that we saw that went back and yes. still hung in there, right? There were some, you know, there were big bands like you too. You could see the police like, well, you know, they had big management. People were sort of, they had the calculator going, Jesus, we could be making. A lot of bands just didn't have that behind them. You know, they were a little bit naive and they definitely weren't making much money. You know, and I, I, I think in a way, you know, they go there crappy vehicle or whatever you know crappy accommodation driving all day playing a gig in front of a few people then going off playing another crappy gig somewhere with a few people and just you know and by then just wanted to kill each other you know that was that's the general vibe you know it's like five years I've just had enough I don't want to hear my bass player talk of you know his his prank is getting on my nerve now it's not that funny everyone just winding each other up you know what i mean it was just like being in the van for too long with someone farting thinking mm, that's just that that joke oh yeah that yeah. joke was pretty poor well, the first time but now it's getting on my nerve i'm going to kill the bass player well it didn't see the well other than the ones i mentioned but um the mekons actually did play in Wichita at the smallest venue possible, but, but that was after I had left for Boston. So I, I wasn't at that show um, much later, but I remember, um, well, see, so yeah, you know, I don't know if, how you even, what it takes to actually use the name Mekons because I don't know how much of the band was even consistent from, from when I was buying those first 45s, but, but then it ended up being, um, Who's John the guy? Lang John Langford. Yeah, because he ended up living in Chicago or something, didn't he? Yeah, and um, Sally and Sally Timms also lives there as well. I and, think they're in the same house. And that happened with, uh, as I, if I remember right, Martin Atkins. Yes. Uh, we met him because we actually we actually opened for for Pill and for Brian Brain. Then later, like only like a year or two later, I think. Brian, Brian. And 
you know, he used to like, oh, what a nice guy. But he ended up living, and both times it was in Chicago. And then I think somehow he ended up just staying in Chicago, right? And, and um, didn't even the, like, the drummer from Gang of Four end up? I don't know, but I know there was a guy called Chris Conley who also came over from Scotland and he's, I think he sort of ended up in Chicago. And they, and oh. they, with Martin Atkins does a massive project, which now I am slightly can't remember, which is embarrassing. Because Oh, been... speaking of Scotland, oh, that, I think one of the things that might have helped uh, speed up our demise in 83, I think, I think we had been booked to, to do opening dates, a whole bunch of uh, shows for the Orange Juice tour, and then it was canceled. And we right. and we really had identified with the postcard label band. We thought, oh, this is perfect. This is gonna be awesome. And then that didn't happen. And we salvaged a few, you know, random dates that had been kind of already on that schedule. But oh, that really was a disappointment. Was a, so then Big but, Dipper comes along in the mid '80s. Yeah, mid to late. I mean, yeah, yeah, mid to late. Because, because with because as I, I sort of might have mentioned earlier, you know, there was these kind of periods of music, you know, roughly. I mean, this isn't one hundred percent, but between eighty three and eighty seven, there was a real indie scene that was kind of happening in, in the UK, and mainly this was because of the Smiths. You know, the Smiths turned up, Morrison yeah. Marr, and it was like, okay, that's this is a new new party in town, and they're pretty intense and they're doing some great stuff, you know, if you, whether you like it or not. But there was definitely a lot of bands. There was suddenly the go-betweens from Australia, the Triffids, you know, there was the June Brides. Orange Juice had slightly been a different period, but there was also people like the Wolfhounds and Yeah, Yeah, No. And so there was a, yeah. and the wedding present suddenly appeared. It was like, oh, blimey, this is, you know, the indie scene, you know, and they would, Indian sound in that kind of jingly jangly, but there was all those little record labels like Postcard, 53rd and 3rd, Rough Trade had done it, Creation Records, there was Kitchenware, you know, there was the pink label, which was tiny, but they still put out quite a few gigs. So between 83 to 87, there was definitely a scene. Now what then happens, the Smiths break up, then ecstasy comes along, the drug ecstasy. And suddenly people start consuming that. The, the, the next generation of 16 or 18 year olds who are, you know, having that kind of first moment, like they want to start to dance to the Stone Roses, the Happy Mondays, the Soup Dragons, you know, Primal Scream, it's the ecstasy sound, you know, and that's kind of really big. So a lot of those indie bands were like, oh, you know what, I'm tired, we've made no money, we're fed up. And also, I'm not going to take ecstasy and make a dance record. So that's it. We're out. Of, it's a bit yeah. like we're out of here. Thanks a lot. It's been great fun. I'll spend the next 10 years recovering from this experience, you know, and feel damaged. But, you know, what the hell? So, you know, you you sort of jump back quite quickly into being in a band, don't you? Yeah, I didn't intend to. Uh, it was just too easy. Because... Um, you know, I I was seriously done, and, and I was focusing on visual art, and and I was so done I I wouldn't even listen to uh, any bands that were coming up or, or bands that had continued and were like what REM for example. You know, they were touring the same circuit, the same clubs that the Embarrassment did, and 
in fact, they covered they covered sex drive at one point, but um, I saw them, you know, and then take off sky and and I and I just thought, I, you know, I'm so done. I, I probably was so envious. It's like, okay, this, you know, why didn't that happen for us? Well, I'm just gonna block that out. And I, when I was painting, I was listening to my dad's. Then that's when I started getting back into my dad's generation music. I would be listening to 40s and 50s non-rock music completely. And but I met, I was introduced to Gary, um, who had been. Uh, he'd already been in a band with the drummer from Mission of Burma. I knew who Mission of Burma was, and now, I, okay, I'm not into that either. But he knew about the embarrassment, so it was like, oh he was convincing me that we had this common bond and, and I realized we did, we talked, we just sat around and talked about music and we, and we were both, um, well, he, he had a horrible time in this band with uh, the guy from Mission to Burma with Peter. Apparently he just, I don't think Gary really enjoyed being in a band much. Anyway, I came to learn, you know, just all, all the things with that didn't really, give him much pleasure so he was kind of done with being in a band too and we were just agreeing on well you know it's really all about songwriting and recording that's great just coming up with you know songs and let's have fun with that let's just collaborate I'm you know we have a lot that we agree on in musical taste whatever um and we started that way and it he just happened to know you know the bass player and his cousin was the drummer and had a place to, to practice. And I still just thought, oh, okay, we're just going to get together and uh, come up with some songs we all like to play. We're just going to have some fun. And that's all it was supposed to be. But because he and his friend Steve on bass, because they'd already had this sort of band history together, they already were connected to the Boston scene to the point where as soon as they told somebody that you know we had put this we, we had a little thing together and oh we've got bill from the embarrassment oh okay and yeah we've actually written some songs and we've learned some songs. we've got a set you know the first gig we got was opening for the mecons who i at that point had never seen live you know i was remembering my days as a fan but this was like the country and western version Right. Uh, the, the country punk mecons at back at the rat where i had you know first gone in search of the boston punk scene in 78 or something so here we were it's like why you know why would i say no then i i what the hell i guess let's do it and we were just having fun with that but we kept being off you know offered these things like well okay want to do another gig and and well, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not interested in doing the, you know, Monday night play for free at the club and see if they'll hire us, you know, to, 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 to play, to come back and play again. It's like, no, thanks. I've already, already been through that. It, you know, it's great for young people, but I don't, I'm not, that's not my ambition. So I really just was not going to pursue that, but they kept just making things too easy for us. So we just kind of did that and even going into the studio was was 
And you got because it's interesting because I, I must admit I didn't remember the first album, but I definitely remember the second album. But you were on Demon Records or Homestead Records quite quickly, who were quite a quite a big deal at the time, weren't they? So you you know you yeah. certainly you know from the days of the embarrassments, the embarrassment to this, you know, it's it's like a you suddenly went well, blimey, we've we've suddenly got a budget. People are suddenly kind of interested in us. Well, that was that's true because the embarrassment never had been given any kind of like you know here's some money go record an album, and so when Big Dipper got that, and it, as small as it was, it was like wow we've got actual money to go record an album. So okay, we'll do we'll do the best we can with that. We didn't even think we fit on Homestead for what for who for what artists they had. It was like I mean we're kind of a kind of a poppy indie band you know don't but we were just being you know ourselves i guess they they were kind of being open-minded too like well we're not quite sure what they're going to come up with with this album but you know we know we know their resumes you know we trust yes uh, the people that are doing this we kind of know where they where they're coming from so uh and how many records did you sell what was the sort of the general Oh God, it was had to be horrible numbers. I, I don't think we ever wanted to know because it would have been too just kind of discouraging to actually know the real numbers. So But then but then you know you were on Homestead for two, then Epic as well for your third one, Slam. Yeah, so. it was it's inexplicable. Like we didn't we didn't belong on a major label. That was the biggest mistake ever was was letting that happen. You know, we should we should have known better by then. Especially, I should have been wise enough, but um, at that point, no. That's that's when we made bad decisions. I think everything up up to that, we probably had made good decisions just based on going with our gut instinct. I mean, we were just doing things our way. Like, yes, it, there wasn't a lot of pressure. Well, this is what we do, and. Okay, Obviously, someone, someone at Epic must have thought, look, I don't know, they had some pretty, you know, I mean, that's a major label, isn't it? And at the time, yeah, it was like serious business. So they must have looked and thought, we can see money here. We can yeah, see I don't know what they're basing that on. Well, we learned, you know, that, oh, we were just another one of um, part of the the routine and the way, the way it works on a major label. You know, they were just signing up several bands and as usual they had no idea what was going to sell you know as as pro professional as everybody wants to say they are they have no idea what what's going to sell or not so it's all about playing the numbers we're going to put out so many albums and one of them will probably be successful so that's the one we'll get behind that one and then we'll all be proud of ourselves for coming up with that the rest of them We'll just let them yes. dis disappear, oh. which is what they did with us and most of the other stuff. It was like, yeah, no thanks, that didn't work. So because your um, album, the second album, Craps, that got a lot of good reviews in the UK, didn't it? It got it yeah. Got we were amazed at that. I mean, it was great. I felt so lucky to actually to be getting any attention whatsoever in the UK. You know, for the 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 quality of music that comes out of there it's like what do they need us for you know uh 
what are, what are we doing that they would have any interest in hearing a band from Boston? You know what it's like if you're a music fan, you're always looking for that really obscure band. Yeah. Where, where, you know, you'd even like Lydia Lunch, you know, you were that desperate just because she looked cool before you even heard any of her music. You know what I mean? It was that kind of, <laughs> yeah. it would be like, oh yeah, early Sonic Youth, yeah. that's amazing. Even though you thought, God, it's painful. But eventually they do make some great, you know, music and you think, oh, thank God for that. But you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like that, the importance of being so obscure and so cold and you think oh yeah this has got great reviews it's a great cover everything looks good you know it's got that vegas vibe and um you know and the, <laughs> and the nme have given it this great review and everyone's happy so yeah you just you must have felt like okay this is we are major players um i i don't think we were kidding ourselves to think that we were major players i felt i think that we just felt um Really, just, again, just really fortunate that we could actually uh, be, uh, you know, just looked at at the, at the level where we could actually even go work in Europe and in the UK and actually go play in front of some audiences there. Enough to where, I mean, it was enough for us just to be able to travel, mm. just to get overseas and see because you know, none of us could ever do a vacation in in the UK or or in Europe, but this way, man, we actually got to be tourists you know, in our limited spare time. We, and the memories from that are, you know, incredible for set for life. The the kind of things that we experienced there, so that made it so worthwhile. But it's like you know, we're not like we're going to do this. We're not going to be famous. We're not going to have a hit record from this. But we get to go play. We get to go see. UK and what, what was your play. tour of the UK like? Did you play many dates? Well, I think we were there at least twice where it was it was connected to Europe both times. And, and maybe there were some UK shows that were even uh, beyond that. That I can't remember. But the, uh, And I'm terrible. I, I do have a journal. In fact, uh, our bass player, Steve, since now he just spent the summer writing he he was reliving the 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 slam the big late the major label tour disaster of the summer of 1990 and he was basing that on his journal which and i didn't keep one then but i reminded him i i do have at least one european journal where i i made lots of notes because otherwise i wouldn't remember a thing but yes. um but Manchester, you know playing playing in manchester for instance was great because we we were so excited about like oh the music the bands that came from Manchester it's like oh I can't believe we're actually going to play like are they even what are they going to think of us in Manchester I mean how do you measure up yeah. so um so that was you know it's really fun but just to get the lay of the land and to go you know north from out of London and and kind of understand how things were connected there it was it was always fun to play London. I I can't remember what part of the city we would end up in, you know, one given place, because I'd be more worried about just making sure that I was going to be able to do what I was supposed to do. Yeah, absolutely. I have to focus on, on because that. Because as, as, as you probably can remember now, 
the Seattle grunge scene comes along, which kind of again knocks a lot of other bands who were just oh yeah. Yeah, that that kind of was like, okay, there's a new sound, there's new kids in town, and my God, it's kind of an exciting noise. But then, you know, like you said, you then have the 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 big sign in, the signature goes on the on the contract, Epic Records to make Slam. So what was that kind of experience? Because obviously quite soon after that, you know, you um you yeah, it it's sort of like splits and um yeah, I mean, did it, was it from the moment you signed on the dotted line? Did you think, oh, this is this has not been a good, but never mind, we had to do something. I don't think uh, there might have been some red flags that we didn't really recognize, but I think all the process of recording at such a a much more leisurely and kind of. Uh, luxurious level even i mean just the fact that now oh, all of a sudden we can spend days you know late you know tearing apart this song and rebuilding it and thinking about oh maybe we can try all this stuff that we never got to try before so that experience was all great we we thought we were being allowed to explore creatively and and that that was leading to some some results, some actual musical results that were above what we had been able to do. And I think that's still the case when we kind of go back and listen. It's like, yeah, some of our best songs and some of our best ideas we ended up being able to put together there. The total effect isn't necessarily better in any way than than what we did before. And it, and it also allowed for some real... Uh, some overworking and you know, sec, you know, too much second guessing and overworkings. So that had a negative effect, but it was still, it was a lot of fun for everybody to do the record. It wasn't until we got out, we took on the, the task of promoting it and meeting the, well, even packaging it, we started to realize that, that um, major label record business is a is a sham really and it's all it's you know you pretend to be something um and everybody it's kind of like the, the emperor has no clothes everybody's just pretending oh yeah that person knows what they're doing really and you're not supposed to call them out on it and we we should have just uh stuck to our instincts but we i think we realized then that we we'd made a huge mistake and that because we were supposed to be trusting the experts and none of them were experts at, at anything that they did. You know, the, the people that made the cover, they didn't know what they were doing. The people that made the video, they didn't know what they were doing. They only knew how to like accept the check. Like, oh yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, maybe go do the right drugs with somebody else so that everybody was stayed in the loop. And we were you know, looking at that, like, are you, wait, like, what are we missing here? Because you're not good at what you do and you're getting paid that for, for that. I mean, real, I mean, we could have done that ourselves for, for nothing or me, you know, give me a hundred dollars. I would have done. It was, it was so obvious that it was all a big sham. Like, yeah. Oh man. But then it was too late. And the same with the tour, as soon as, you know, we weren't, we weren't making them any money. 
so all all the all the pretense came off of it like i thought you were i thought you liked us no we didn't like <laughs> you we liked the idea that we might make some money off of you so you know that was enough to kind of sour everybody from but did you did you have a moment as i you know where you all sat down and had the conversation like actually can we just kill this off as a band yeah no no it, it had to it had to fizzle it took like three years for it to fizzle out it, it kind of in reverse it went from uh well not i mean not in reverse the band initially came together it, it was a two-stage process because it was gary and i meeting and deciding that we would we could really collaborate well and that proved to be true you know we we found that out over the course of doing some demos together and then jumped right into okay now we have a lineup of a band okay and we didn't go around and like audition people it was just like here's my friend here's my cousin uh we're not trying to uh you know sign a record deal so we don't care beyond that yeah. it's like you you guys are fun to play with so let's do let's do this thing but uh but on the downs as it was coming apart it was uh you know everybody wondering who to blame besides the record label and we're, it start the blame starts to turn inward um like oh you know if you hadn't screwed that up like you know that would have been a great show except for you you know so we're all starting to lash out at each other. So the bass player is the first one. He felt the most pressure. He was the victim of the most uh, criticism. So he left at the end of the tour. He's the one that just published the whole diary about it. It was very interesting reading. It, it really is a good read. And um, I'm glad he did it. He had to, he was kind of working out his demons that way. So he went right away, but then it was like, okay, we're not giving up. We can replace him. You know, maybe yeah, well, we can get a better a better bass player anyway. So, you know, we're just gonna keep going. We'll be, and we thought we might even still have a record deal after that. They hadn't just come out and admitted that. <laughs> no, you guys aren't gonna make another record. Are you kidding me? They should. It would have been nice if they'd have just been upfront about it. But they strung us along. So here we are writing more songs, and we got a new bass player. Um, but then when when that when they finally let on, it's like, uh, no, you, you don't have a deal anymore. So um, then the then the drummer left, Jeff, and um, but we still replaced him. We got my friend Brent from the embarrassment. We he was all done being a, a Del Fuego, and um, he'd kind of bottomed out from that experience. He'd had a similar kind of major label well they actually very successful as a del fuego they had a really good short career but he kind of bottomed out from that and he so he was putting himself back together and um the timing was right so i actually got him to be in big dipper so um he's such a great drummer and he'd become even more powerful drummer in the del fuego so um we had this whole new big dipper power ensemble you know the rhythm section was tougher than ever and um we thought 
we were writing some really good songs again. We were actually in, in pretty good shape, but no one wanted to hear what we were doing. It's like we were cursed at that point. So it was really um, pretty sad to, to try to keep that going. And so um, as soon as Gary left, you know, we, we agreed. It's like, as long as it's the two of us, that was the foundation, then we could call it Big Dipper legitimately no matter who else we had. But if, if we weren't doing it together, then obviously that's, that was the end of Big Dipper. So we officially called it then. And that was it, that was it. So then yeah. just kind of briefly, then what happens to you and, and your sort of musical journey? Um, uh, well, I, for a brief time, we actually kept the remnants going as, as uh, we called it saucer for a little while, but, um, kept a little trio going because I was actually having some fun playing music and I'd kind of gotten over. I knew that the big dipper thing was over with, but still we were in Boston and, and we had a little fun playing some shows as a trio, nothing, nothing ambitious about that. Uh, but then I, I became a family man. And, and so I just, um, became a, a stay-at-home dad and and um, wrote songs on the side and kept recording little demos and eventually went out and played solo acoustic gigs once in a while uh, mixing you know I could pull I could go all the way back to the embarrassment catalog and play some songs that we had done then because for me the test of a good song was always, you know, whether we could strip it down to one acoustic guitar and still make it something that you'd want to listen to. And it didn't have to require even the whole band. So I, so I could uh, go back and play Big Dipper songs and embarrassment songs and, and the new songs. Um, eventually, well, the Big Dipper reunited for an album, even the embarrassment reunited in 1990 for for an album. During actually, it was during the time that Big Dipper was doing the major label album, so that was very confusing for me. But I felt like I could handle both um, both roles. So, you know, we had both bands going. But then after all that, um, you know, all all Big Dipper guys were still staying in touch and. At one point, we could do an album together, do some shows together. Um, then I, you know, I I got married. I, I met my second wife and and found out she wrote really good lyrics. So she'd never thought about making them into a song, but I taught her, or I collaborated with. I needed a collaborator. I didn't really have much to say lyrically anymore, but mm. I love putting. The music together so I found her to be a great collaborator we started uh, writing and recording and even performing songs just the two of us until we got really busy with family stuff again and um, so that's kind of on the back burner that kind of coming up to now my my musical um, process and it, it's very important to my health and well-being but i i have to be doing music and uh jeff from big dipper the drummer who never wrote a song until 
the reunion, the Big Dipper reunion album where he contributed some songs. Well, then in the past four years, he's he'd been writing up a storm and very personal songs. And, and it kind of brings me back to the whole Jonathan Richmond tradition. I just thought, you know, this is really great. He's just, when he shared them with me as these primitive demos, I was just so sucked in. It's like, he's just writing from the heart. Of course, he's saying, yeah, I was just like listening to what you guys were doing all these years in Big Dipper. I was just kind of taking it in processing it. And now this is what I'm coming out with. So I get to record his songs. I take them from the primitive demo form and then flesh them out in my studio. And a lot of times he doesn't have to even come back and read. I mean, he's got a vocal track and maybe some weird little instrument and then a kind of a, a rhythm foundation. I mean, he structures the song enough with this foundation track that I know if it's a song or not, and then I can kind of build on that. So mm. hard to explain, but I've got pretty much a whole album's worth out. So it'll be, hopefully it'll be the solo album for, for him. So it sounds, um, it sounds like both, the, so the the big depot is still slightly going. Yeah, yeah. Even wow. Gary, you know, Gary. Well, Gary ended up collaborating with uh, um, Robert Pollard from Guided by Voices, and they did they did an album project a few years back. Well, now he's he's back into that mode again. So he creates all the music for Robert to write lyrics and sing over. Yeah, weird. It's a, it's like the opposite, the opposite type of collaboration from what Jeff and I have now. But it's really great for Gary. I mean, he he's a brilliant musical. Yes, because Guided writer. by Voices is sub, one of those very cult bands, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> have you come across that I, book? I don't know that book. I, see, Gary's had to like prod me for years to even listen to Guided by Voices. And I get it. It's like, okay, I get it. Yeah. yeah. Robert Pollard's a genius. So, you know, to, to Gary, Robert Pollard is like the epitome of songwriters. So, and so for him to be collaborating with him, I mean, he's, he's in heaven being able to do that. So yes. he's very, very inspired doing that. So, that's so it sounds like with your musical journey, which has been, you know, like four decades, I mean, yeah. it does sound like everything is still, the, all the plates are still spinning and most of the characters are still in your life. Um, yeah, I, you know, that's one of the best feelings about it because uh, when I hear about, you know, musicians who had some ex experience, but, you know, now they, they have no contact, they don't want to have anything to do with somebody that they used to, do music with it's kind of sad but um i feel again just really fortunate yeah like brent being my oldest friend in the world and even the singer in that band john you know i met him like only a year or two after i met brent when we were still kids and and uh so we we talked quite a bit and we we live all over the country nobody i'm the only one in wichita related to that but uh we were just inducted into the kansas music hall of fame so 
not in person, but virtually. So, so we were talking and John did this video acceptance speech that I thought was hilarious. It was so John, you know, but yeah, he, he hasn't written songs probably in 30 years. And I don't think he has any desire to do that. But I tell mm -hmm. him, you know, opportunity is there. If you ever write, if you ever write some lyrics, even, you know, then come out to Wichita. His mother still lives here. She's like 90 and you know, come out here and we'll record them in my studio. We can do some new embarrassment. It'll be the embarrassment again if we, or we might even play a gig sometime if um, there's any occasion to. There's some film project that, you know, hasn't ever gotten finished. And if, if it got finished and they put it out, oh, well, let's, let's get together and play a show. You know, I might have to sit on a stool and just kind of, Yes. I'm not I'm not gonna get up, move around very much. Maybe maybe I will, maybe I won't. I don't You won't do you won't go down on your knees too quickly just in case you can't get up. That's true, man. And don't do don't a, do that. Don't shame. don't do the knee pose or the splits. It could just be uh -huh. horrendous. But what so just just lastly, I mean, what would you say to a, an eighteen you know, if you could have said something to your eighteen year old self kind of starting out and you thought, Oh look, kid. I'll just give you a quick word, a couple of pointers that I've learned over the years or decades. I just wonder what you would just tell them if you could have said something, something that you wish mm. you'd known when you started out. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a whole lot of things that I have to sort through, but I, one thing that had come to mind fairly recently when I, in that same kind of thought mode, I was thinking, you know, if I had, um, had the presence of mind to like really, really appreciate the moment that you're in. But that's, I don't know if that's even possible for somebody who's 18 years old, but you know, we had so many experiences that we're always thinking beyond them rather than actually appreciating what was actually happening. It's kind of like, yeah, yeah, it's this, but I'm actually, you know, I'm thinking about something else that's going to be happening little further down the lane or you know what what's yeah. going to happen after this and I, I don't know if it necessarily would help but I know for me the the joy of playing music really has evolved as I've gotten older and and been able to really be in the moment I, I mean I couldn't do that when I was 18 or 20 or even even 30 I mean I look at some of the videos of Big Dipper uh, from 1990 so like 30 years ago and some of it came up during this whole summer this reliving this uh, summer tour disaster and I saw a video of one of the shows and it prompted a conversation with all the guys we were, we were all kind of talking at least on Facebook together and, and I'm thinking you know it, you know, it wasn't just Steve, you know, targeting, you know, Steve and Chris. When I see that, I see like four guys, none of them having any fun doing, it's like, we should have been having a great time. And I understand there were outside forces that were like starting to really affect us. But, and I see myself up there thinking, you know, I, I might've pulled it off pretty well sometimes because I, I was, pretty well, you know, 
skilled at what I was doing. I was pretty in shape for what I was doing. I could perform it, but I could tell looking at that, I was not enjoying what I was doing. And yet, you know, 2013, the last Big Dipper chance to play together, I think it was about 2013 already, that we promoted that uh, reunion album. And being on stage with those guys again and playing those songs, it was joyous. I mean, it was like, this is, this is the experience of music. I'm, I'm loving this and I want to share this with, you know, whoever, whoever is out there to listen. And so the, and that's a unique joy to have, but I can have a similar kind of joy, you know, playing with one or two other people. Just if I'm in, if I'm present in the moment and I'm actually letting myself enjoy it. I mean, it's just the experience of music for, for its own sake. It can be a joyous thing. And I just, I blew that off when I was young, you know, so. Tricky, it's tricky, isn't it? Yeah. Did you manage, I mean, just lastly, I mean, with, with um, not so much the embarrassment, but definitely Big Dipper, you did some very, did you ever do any lucrative kind of soundtrack stuff material? Did you ever sort of think, hey, we've managed to sort of for once make some cash on this? Or was it just like, oh. no? We still get, uh, let's see, we talk, how does Steve put it? Because he kind of, Steve from Big Dipper kind of oversees the uh, the money that we still get from, uh, you know, some, something licensed to film or TV even, the free, Oh, I he's got a phrase for it. I can't remember, but um, it's always, you know, much appreciated, but it's, it's usually either one song or one of two songs, you know, somebody will use somewhere and then, they, oh, this is great. And then we finally get to like hear it and you're kind of straining your ear like, I didn't even actually hear the song. Well, okay. They're going to pay us a little bit of money for that. So, well, that's great. You know, after all these years, we're actually still making a little bit of money off of uh, songwriting. You know, isn't that um, a good feeling? Well, it would, it would be a better feeling if people could actually hear the song that you're being paid for, I suppose. But you know, I don't think that's really happened in the examples that I've heard. But you never know. Yeah, the, the catalog is still out there and yes i can't i don't understand how they pick stuff for use like that when i i figure it could be pretty much any song they could stick in there so yeah um and that was me in conversation with bill godfrey one-time member of the embarrassments and also big dipper Anyway, look, that's all I've got to say, actually. That's the end of the interview. Thank you ever so much. If you're still listening, well done. You need a medal. But I enjoyed it, and that's the main thing. So anyway, look, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86 Show. And these have all been archived for your enjoyment, or something like that. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Check them out. They might just change your life. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.